recent books include The Locust and the Bee, Princeton University Press 2014, Art of Public Strategy, Oxford 2008, Good and Bad Power, Ideals and Betrayal of Government 2006, and uh, Connexity, Harvard Business Press 1998, and most recently, Big Mind 2017. I had a chance to look at the book uh, over the weekend. It's a really interesting read in which Jeff uh, develops a theory of collective intelligence that he then, uh, my favorite parts are the latter parts of the book where you apply collective intelligence at various scales from individual team and work group meetings, which I think about a lot because as you say in that chapter, we've all been in a lot of bad meetings, to whole organizations, to government agencies and governments, and then to all of society, or uh, societies as a, as a collective intelligence agent. And we'll be talking a lot about that. I think you'll, you'll probably address one worry, which I just kind of want to lay on the table, which is you know, thinking about a liberal society as a contest of interest and interest groups rather than a collective actor with some intelligence. Just kind of want to lay that on the table. And then um, I had a, a thought about uh, social stratification and collective intelligence. And in particular, so we, we view the current moment uh, with the Brexit election, and, or the intellectuals, we being intellectuals, the uh, Brexit referendum and the election of populists in uh, the United States and in uh, some countries in Europe as uh, a failure of some kind of mass intelligence, I think, you know, my own view is that it might be a little bit of a corrective to the failures of governance for the past few decades in uh, failing to deliver for uh, the middle classes and people below the, the whatever, 70% of the income distribution, at least in Europe, and maybe the larger collective intelligence mechanism, or at least reaction mechanism, is a little bit of pushback against that. And so one question that I wanted to lay on the table for you to think about is how collective intelligence is affected by who gets to participate in the formulation of ideas, the, the analysis of public policy, the generation of data, and the perspectives for viewing that data. And so I was struck by uh, a figure that someone sent to me confidentially. Oh, wait, where is it, Melissa? Next one over, this, this, this one here. Um, so you might think that to the extent that societies and governments are, uh, that there are agents of the collective mind, it's people at universities like this in the United States, elite universities in the United States and in, in the UK, who are leading that analytic project by generating the data, by writing the software, by doing the policy analysis, by generating the economic statistics, by looking at those economic statistics. And so I, the collective mind project is, does it matter who those people are? And so this figure looks at, so this, uh, you kind of can't see it very well, but what this is, is, um, is the undergraduate populations of selective universities in the United States, right? And in the columns are diversity criteria, Asian, black, Latino, white, international, and other, right? And so it's pretty diverse, of course, uh, blacks and Latinos are a little bit underrepresented compared to their general population. But in the rows here are income strata, 
right, of where all these undergraduates at selective universities are. And I've taken the liberty of putting this red line at US median family income. And so I estimate that maybe 10 to 15% of undergraduate populations at selective universities are from the bottom half of the bottom 50% of the US income distribution, right? And so if part of the collective mind of our society is being generated by graduates of these fine institutions, one kind of stretch hypothesis is that the ideas and the collective intelligence that we've been generating for the last couple of decades have not really served these people very well. And so part of the failure of the collective intelligence comes from the selectivity of the intelligentsia. And what we're seeing now is a little bit of pushback against that particular failure in collective intelligence. So just a, a, a question for you to ponder, perhaps, in the Q&A. But that's one of the thoughts that I had on um, <laughs> reflecting upon your book. All right. So let me hand it over to Jeff to talk about, to present your theory and account yeah. of collective intelligence. Uh, present, no, not present online. Well, thank you, Archon, for a completely sort of fundamental question to kind of derail my entire uh, <laughs> talk right from the start. Um, I mean, I, I, I would tend to agree with you, and certainly um, I, I live in a relatively low-income town uh, which voted strongly for Brexit, and I would tend to think it's better to start from the presumption people have behaved relatively rationally in their choices and make sense of it rather than to assume they're stupid, <laughs> uh, which is what a lot of the intelligentsia in my country has done. And, and they, they haven't taken part in uh, all sorts of uh, benefits the last few years. And one of the projects which maybe we can come on to in the question and answers, which I'm working on live at the moment, is applying the theory I'm about to show you to the job system of a city working with young unemployed people, adults being displaced from jobs, and what kind of collective intelligence would help them navigate the turbulent labor market of now. Um, anyway, that's a, that's a, so let, let's come back to your question. Before I say anything else, I just want to give a thanks to uh, Ash Center and Harvard, and particularly uh, Mark and Yorit and others here, who gave me a chance to write this book and escape from my rather mundane life uh, managing an organization, dealing with budgets and you know, paying the power bills and stuff like that. It's a, it's a luxury. You cannot imagine how, um, how appreciated it is to get the chance to think and be inspired by people like you. I'm going to try and present the book in a way I wouldn't to most audiences, but I hope which makes sense in the Kennedy School. I'm going to try and persuade you of three things. One is a problem, uh, a formulation of a problem, which should be relevant to the Kennedy School. Secondly, that some of the things in this book might be helpful for answering that problem. And thirdly, a kind of field of, of, of thought and action, which I hope might be relevant to many of you uh, and can apply to everything from democracy to labor markets to health systems. And I'm going to start with a slightly weird slide. Uh, and this could have been many other examples I could have chosen. And, and the detail doesn't matter here. There is a thing called the English National Cancer Registration Service, which is an incredibly boring name for an attempt to make the, the field of cancer care in England, 50 million or so people, into something a bit more intelligent. They gather huge amounts of data. Every single diagnosis, care records, uh, genomics, you name it. If you can actually see here, most you can't. The literally thousands of data streams coming together on uh, cancer. They give 
doctors and patients' predictive algorithms. How long will you survive with different treatments? They link it to socioeconomic data on risk of falling into debt if you're a family hit by cancer. And the idea is this becomes sort of integral with how doctors work, patients use it, their families. It generates new knowledge because you can then spot patterns in real time, run experiments, and so on. It's run by essentially one doctor who's been quite creative. Um, you won't have heard of it. Most people haven't heard of it. But it's actually a large-scale attempt at intelligence at a system level. Now, the question which came from working with them, and there are, I say, equivalents in almost every field, is who can help them do this well? What discipline helps them do this well? What's the experience of how you make intelligence operate at the level of a system for millions of people? And you know, whose door do they knock on in this university? Who is an expert in doing this stuff? And at the moment, I think there isn't a good answer to that. They take little bits from you know, computer science and data. There's bits of governance. You have to have a lot of psychology, because how these things are actually used by patients or doctors, deeply embedded in culture and psychology, et cetera, et cetera. But again and again in my daily life, we're coming across projects of this kind and a complete lack of both theory and accumulated practice to help understand how do you do that well. So a whole intelligence for a cancer system, a labor market, whatever it may be, actually the whole is more than the sum of its parts. So that's, that's the problem, which I hope you, know, you may recognize is a real problem. I think it's one which is becoming more sharply put into focus as the kind of AIs from Watson and DeepMind and so on become you know, more and more present in every part of our work. And in other parts of my life, you know, we're quite a heavy investor in AI startups. DeepMind is heavily involved in our local health system. In a way, the more and more we have digital technologies making thought transparent, the more it throws the question back to you know, governance, how are you doing it? How, you know, are you making a cancer system intelligent and having a context into which you can put the new tools coming from the technologists? Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there's kind of the crowd and the wisdom of the crowd argument. And I put this up to annoy you, to remind you there is another rich country which this year got rid of their president, and their president is now in jail. What have you been up to? Um, that's South Korea. Uh, uh, but of course, despite you know, many years of the wisdom of crowds arguments, crowds are not in fact very wise. They can be foolish, they can be biased, they can be problematic, conflicted, and so on. So one route into this is the sort of emerging field of experiment around um, mobilizing crowd intelligence. Uh, and if, when there are academic conferences with collective intelligence as the title, this is the sort of thing they look at. Things like the NASA Red Balloon Challenge, where they you know, randomly put red balloons across the US and set a challenge to teams to find them, mobilizing collective brain power and crowds. Now, there's a, there's a lot of experience of doing that, all quite interesting, all quite suggestive, but a long way short of the sort of things which really matter, or large, complex systems. And for me, what I've been trying to do is then understand, I'll, I'll jump over these, so what, what are the lessons from history about dealing with more complex things? Some of you will know the CyberSyn experiment in Chile in the early 70s, which was one previous really bold experiment at collective intelligence under the Allende government, 
you know, with each factory sharing data on production levels to have a decentralized self-organizing system and wonderful sort of Star Trek furniture. Uh, the, the design side of CyberSyn is extraordinary. Of course, <laughs> crushed by the CIA when they deposed Allende. And there are some really interesting historical examples, uh, which I think the Oxford English Dictionary, is, um, which I describe in the book, is particularly uh, uh, fascinating, which was an attempt to map the entire English language, all the meanings of all words ever, in the middle of the 19th century, which mobilized armies of volunteers to collect and analyze and share and pool in ways exactly analogous to what Wikipedia did uh, more than a century later. And it was a very successful project and gave us these beautiful dictionaries. My father worked on A at one point. <laughs> so kind of <laughs> that's when they, they came round and round again. No, 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 just a tiny, tiny bit of A. Uh, um, uh, and there's a long history of collective intelligence experiments, which is worth sort of documenting, analyzing, and I try and make sense of what works and what doesn't in some of them. In terms of the conversation today, I just want to very briefly give a flavor of some of the most theoretical lenses which I, I've tried to develop to make sense of these, these initiatives. And then, as Archon said, to give hopefully some insights into how you might apply those to, uh, say, the governance of a city, how a university runs, or a business, or even just how meetings are run. And I'm going to go through very rapidly, but hopefully give you a flavor. Um, <laughs> and uh, I should say the other prompt for me, and in a way, is, is a really interesting question. Why are some institutions so stupid? And I've been part of collective stupidity in much <laughs> of my life, if I'm honest, uh, not just working in government. And Lehman, I just put there, partly because it's the anniversary, but is really interesting with organizations full of very clever people and lots of smart technology do really stupid things. And that's a sort of good you know, challenge for theory to understand why does that happen and when. And of course, we've, also, we've got all sorts of applications of intelligence now which are essentially predatory. And going back to where you started, Archon, a lot of the things I'm talking about can be used in oppressive predatory ways or in empowering ways. And that is, in a sense, why this field matters politically, because it's up for grabs. So, the first starting point of, of, sort of theories is to ask, what are the capabilities any system needs to be intelligent? So I actually started with my local garage, uh, thinking about <laughs> this, but you can apply it to uh, you know, the Ash Center or anywhere else. And what you find is almost any, um, any recognizably intelligent system, like any recognizably intelligent person, will have some models of how the world should work, an ability to gather data, to analyze and predict, to remember, to coordinate physically, to be creative, to judge, and to be wise. And what's interesting now is that all of these are being transformed by technological tools. We have dramatic explosions of observation and data in almost every field of activity, new tools for analysis and prediction, amazing tools for memory, though in fact governments are incredibly bad at remembering, but that's another matter. Uh, and, but less and less actually technology tools the lower down you get here. So no one yet has an AI for wisdom, as far as I'm aware. There is an interesting sort of sub-field uh, about judgment and tools for judgment. But we're now in a, in a world where almost every element of, of intelligence is both human and machine in practice. And the real questions are how do you combine the best of human and machine, and how do you get the right balance of these in how you think? 
Um, and in the book, I go through lots of examples of this. For example, you know, how in observation, governments now have their own data, but also citizen-generated data. This is the citizen-generated flood map of Jakarta, Peta Jakarta. So humans and machines combining into a new way of looking at the world. We have a whole you know, array of predictive models, many quite problematic. This is from this country, you know, predicting crime, location, etc., all of which seem to work best when they're, again, strongly integrated with human systems of challenge and interrogation, etc., and indeed to spot biases as well. We have all sorts of tools for mobilizing creativity, often using platforms to generate problem solving. This is the one my organization runs. There's lots of other ones. And we have new tools for memory. This is one of the What Works centers. Uh, we've now got about a dozen of them in the UK. And their job is to organize the memory for a field like policing or teaching or healthcare, filling a gap which was, uh, was there before. Um, and in a sense, for any organization, almost a starting point is to analyze these capabilities. How well are they run? How professional are they? How good are they at analyzing, predicting, remembering, creating, etc.? And I would argue even that on its own is actually quite a useful thing we find to do. It then turns out there's a kind of what I call a cognitive economics to make sense of how that sort of thinking is done. Um, and very crudely, almost any kind of decision you have to make has a degree of dimensions. Um, there's a dimension of how simple it is cognitively. Can you make sense of something just through one you know, discipline, one lens? How complex is it in terms of temporal feedback? Uh, do you get immediate feedback to see if what you've done works or doesn't work? And there's a, a, a dimension of social dimension, how many organizations or players need to be involved in a decision. Pretty much all the collective intelligence experiments of the last decade are down here. They're very simple cognitively, like the Red Boot Balloon Challenge, in, time, in temporal terms and in social terms. And that's one of the reasons the field isn't yet very useful, because almost everything you work on in this center is highly dimensional in those terms. So, and for each movement away from zero, cost is involved, significant cognitive cost. And quite a bit of the book is about thinking through the cognitive economics of when an organization devotes scarce resources to memory or creativity or observation. There is an opportunity cost of doing so. And I argue for a different kind of economics which makes sense of that. The next bit of theory, and as I'm going through is very, very fast, is about sort of learning loops, if you like, how any institutions learn. And the, the, the model which, which, which we've now found useful is to think of a sort of first loop, which is the, the standard thing we do in daily life and that computers do and AI, where you essentially have an existing model or paradigm. New data comes in. It either confirms or disconfirms your expectations, and you adapt. So thinking of driving kids to school, you, know, you, you choose a different route to school and see which ones get you the least congestion, and that's what you follow. There's then second loop learning, where that runs into a barrier or a problem, and then you have to create new categories or models to think with. So let's say when you're driving to school, now you're aware of climate change or air pollution, and so you, you change your behavior in response to new categories. And then third loop is when that runs into barriers, and you have to rethink how you think altogether. And driverless cars, new data systems are examples of that. Now, I would argue with any recognizably intelligent collective 
has to be able to do all of these three and to have the tools and resources to do all three. Otherwise, if it's stuck here, it's like Lehman Brothers optimizing within a particular framework and not realizing the environment has changed. And I think um, say some of the book's analysis of those institutions which have failed to develop these second and third loop capacities and therefore get trapped in apparently smart behavior, which in fact turns out to be dumb. So that second bit of um, theory, and I'll go through this very fast. Uh, and then the, the third one is trying to make sense of really the organization of intelligence in the wild. And I look at everything from things like climate change and the, the Paris Climate Summit to how you know, football teams uh, work or, um, uh, or, again, how my local garage works. And it turns out there's some very common patterns when you look at them, um, which, again, I haven't got time to go into in detail, but they include the creation of what I call a commons, an informational knowledge commons, which helps the team make sense of itself, critique what each of the players are doing without ego getting in the way, having an honesty and a trust and a rigor which enables the collective to be, to be intelligent. And this is a, a little summary of some of the elements of, of of intelligence, with the crucial, perhaps final one, being integrating multiple elements for, uh, for action in, in the world. And the one other little bit of theory, which again is missing from most of the literature on collective intelligence and relates to Archon's point, is that nearly all these real examples are in situations of conflict, where there will be interests who want to disrupt intelligence or misinform or disinform or undermine. And uh, just to believe there's a sort of benign wisdom of the crowds completely misses inequality, power dynamics, etc. And, of course, we've got lots uh, aware here, you know, uh, as we see this in social media, how, how many of the, the new tools can be enemies of collective intelligence and how you need very strong immune systems, which includes institutions, which are the guarantors of truth and intelligence, uh, and um, to cultivate capabilities within the population. So, um, very quick sort of summary of the theory. I won't go through all of that. But uh, as Arkan said, about half the book is attempting really a theoretical framework which could then be applied to any situation and make sense of how you combine digital machine intelligence and humans. The second half of the book applies it to different fields. I'm not going to go through that. I'm just going to go through one element of it, mm. um, which I think is going to become really important in the next few years. Uh, which is really the question of how would you design a collective intelligence for something like clean air in the city of uh, Boston, or as I said, for cancer, or public health? What would it look like if you were starting from scratch? And the notion which I found useful is, as a, I have a terrible title, Collective Intelligence Assemblies, and I'll give a you know, bottle of something nice to anyone who comes up with a better, better title, but I've been trying to find where are the good examples in the world now which combine observations and data, models and predictions, analysis, interpretation, memory, creativity, and feed it into action and learning of a real, of a real institution. Um, some of them you can find in business. Um, so this is Google Maps, which uh, is a really interesting little story, which I, I tell in the book, um, which is best interpreted as Google attempting to you know, map the entire world geography having their own search engine, but then buying a whole series of companies which provided other things they needed, scrollable maps, Google Earth, Street View, but also opening up. Mm -hmm. So Google Maps API meant that any 
programmer could create uh, uh, um, well, it's services using Google Maps, and then Google Map Maker, so the public could contribute the missing bits. So Google Maps is a really good example of an assembly, an assembly of multiple elements which together create something really useful. Um, and then there are some other ones in, in other fields. So in the case of the global environment, Planetary Skin Institute was a failed experiment of NASA and Cisco, but to create a, a, a real-time collective intelligence system for the for the ecosystems of the world, of the world uh, forestry, oceans, and so on. Uh, the European Union has now put about 10 billion euro into Copernicus, which is attempting to do the same. Again, creating a, a sort of scan of all the vital signs of an ecosystem fed back into predictive models, uh, memory analysis, and into the people on the ground whose job it is to manage fisheries, forestry, and so on. So this is a field, very live attempts to create collective intelligence assemblies for the environment. There are some very different ones in health. Amy is Artificial Intelligence for Medical Epidemics, uh, which um, is a small startup, but trying to combine data collection, including from citizens, predictive models of how epidemics can spread, working into public health systems to allow them to respond to dengue, Ebola, um, uh, 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 outbreaks. And it's a really interesting example also of the psychological element using games and rewards to help people feed data into uh, the system. Uh, Metasub is another one, the metagenomics of urban biomes. Um, this will put you off going to New York ever. So they do these things <laughs> called patho maps, which, which map the state of um, bacteria in subways. Uh, that's the New York one, uh, and you find there's a lot of plague on the New York subway. Um, but what it's trying to do is, again, create a global, real-time collective intelligence system which maps the state of bacteria, maps antimicrobial anti resistance, which is one of the world's great threats, in order to help public health systems respond, adapt, share uh, experiences, and so on. Um, there's quite a few other examples of that kind of these emergent assemblies. But again, they've got nowhere to turn to for advice. They're doing it without the help of a, of a profession, uh, and the academy, etc. They're always being sort of cobbled together by creative individuals. Mm. Uh, and democracy is the other, the other space. Um, uh, as Archon knows, we've done in my organization quite a work designing uh, platforms for democracy uh, called the Descent Tools, which are now in use in actually about 50 cities. This is the one from Madrid where it's part of Decide Madrid. And these are platforms which allow citizens to propose ideas, to comment, to deliberate. And they're partly an expressive version of democracy, but they're also trying to mobilize the collective intelligence of the city to help solve problems, generate ideas. Um, Paris is doing it on a large scale as well, including for school kids. And if you're interested, we, we mapped quite a few of those in a Nesta report a few months ago. And probably the... the, the, the for me, the most interesting current example is Taiwan, where V Taiwan, um, I won't go through the elements, but this is out of the Taiwanese government and parliament, has developed a whole process for legislation which exactly fits what I'm talking about. It's a collective intelligence assembly, gathering observations and data, feelings and assessment using AI, polis, to organize the deliberation to then help the parliament and government make decisions. It's a 
say, still in an almost experimental mode, but it's an attempt at applying collective intelligence theory to the work of a parliament and government. I'll jump over this stuff. Uh, and then, as Archon said, there's one of the chapters is about meetings. <laughs> because I was fascinated. I, my organization runs hundreds of meetings. And we've never really looked at the <coughs> science of meetings. And it turns out there is quite a lot known about what meeting formats mobilize collective intelligence. What I'm do, doing now is almost the worst possible way of doing it, so I apologize. Uh, it, but, uh, but a lot is known about how you really tap into the, the brain power of people and really bring that to the surface, make the most of it. And that is almost entirely ignored in government, business, and universities, what is known. So if nothing else, please read the chapter on meetings, and it may change your behavior, even though you don't all end up sitting around in a circle on a nice uh, bit of grass. Um, so to, to sort of conclude my, my, my sort of very brief um, intro, I think we're in this period where artificial intelligence is almost dominating the minds of much yeah. of the world, the fears of job destruction, incredible advances. Last week's deep mind uh, um, success Goal. on chess yeah. was extraordinary. I mean, I, I'm, I'm say I'm, but my my hunch is that most of the value of that will only come if we combine it with collective intelligence, with human intelligence, and it's the machine plus human element which is crucial in everything from policing systems and health systems and learning to democracy. Um, which requires what I call intelligence design. You can choose your own term. Um, but requires a sort of skill set, a body of knowledge and practice, which doesn't quite exist. It can draw on many elements. I mean, much of what the Kennedy School over many years is part of this. But it's, it's not yet quite turned into a form where you can advise the English Cancer Registry, the Metasub, the Amy's, all these others, in how do you make a whole system work intelligently. And we've got this um, possibly emerging field, straddling multiple disciplines. At the moment, huge investment in AI, almost none at all in collective intelligence. And as far as I'm aware, sort of no, no centers specializing in doing this well. And I mean, going back to what you said earlier, I think that's perhaps one of the reasons for dissatisfaction with where we are in the world. Um, if you are someone who's just lost their job at 53 because their factory's gone out of business or whatever, you know, is there a way you can take part in a group mind which understands job needs, skills needs, help you be an agent in your own life? I think these tools are now emerging, which will make it much easier to feel in control, to use the language of our Brexit vote. <laughs> uh, but at the moment, most of the response to these things is the exact opposite, which yeah. is centralized in autocratic you know, old men uh, uh, to run the world for you. So I think there's a, there's a highly political side to this argument about almost capturing collective intelligence as part of, an as part of the answer to a world mm. which, despite its investment in smart machines, which we all carry around with us, often feels like it's becoming stupider and where we are more and more feeling like passive observers on decisions which don't belong to us. So that's, Great. in a way, the motivation for this book. And I look forward to both questions and very hostile commentary. Because <laughs> part of the book is also about why argument is a useful way to get to better results and disagreement. Very so, thank you. All right, thank you. Well, there's a, a lot on the table. If people could raise their hands. Who's a, go ahead. 
Um, well, the microphone. I loved your reference to the 53-year-old man who, of course, who um, has lost his job and no clear career future. Um, and he, he's probably going to—he probably will vote for Brexit or Trump or even worse candidates if he leaves, lives in uh, Central Europe. Wouldn't he be much better off in, if he lived in, in Germany, perhaps, or certainly Scandinavia, where I think they do a better job of job retraining than we do? Well, um, adult skills is, is becoming a very live uh, issue. Um, Scandinavia has traditionally been very good at it. At the moment, I think Singapore is ahead in terms of putting in place um, personal credits, tax incentives, a whole, whole architecture for helping that person find a new job. Where the question relates to what I've been showing, and this is yeah. only part of the solution, but it's, we're doing this live in a couple of UK cities at the moment, is allowing you as that 53-year-old, first of all, we scrape the web for all job advertisements so you can find out what skills are being looked for and what the pay is. You can get access to analysis of what jobs are likely to disappear over the next 10, 15 years out of automation. I could talk more about that if you want, so at least you don't get, take the wrong route. It can tell you what one extra skill would most increase your employability in that environment. And then ideally, though our policies are missing on this, but as I say, Singapore has it and France is working on it, you can then access like a personal account or credit from the government to get you that skill, get you the, the advice and coaching to get into a job. Now, that's, to my mind, that is not a complete answer to the question of disempowerment and economic um, uh, you know, inequality, but it's a necessary part of the solution. And so I think anyone working on issues of jobs in the future, this will be part of their package, will be collective intelligence systems for jobs and skills. And I say we have live beta versions on many of those elements now. Mm -hmm. So it's not theoretical. I think the complete solution is turn 80 as I did. Very good. Other, who's got there? Yeah, go for it. Is there anybody here from the MIT Center for Collective Intelligence? So MIT does have a Center for Collective Intelligence, and one of the things they're doing is, is running um, uh, problem sets <clears throat> on climate change. Mm. And one of the things that I've found lacking in them is that they've been up for about four or five years. Mm. They don't go back over the previous challenges and mine the information mm. that may be there. So if you don't know about the Center for Collective yep. Int Intelligence, you should. Second thing is, this is about the 53rd or 54th birthday of Buckminster Fuller's idea of the, of the world game, the idea of playing with the data about the world, like the planetary skin, mm. so that you begin to think about mm. what would it be like to have success at least the bare minimum, for 100% of humanity. A useful thought experiment. Yeah. I'm wondering if you've looked at things like that, or I think it's John Francis who it, it does the world peace game with fourth graders, yeah. and things like that. 
So on, on the first one, so MIT has had, I, I think, a good center on collective intelligence for a few years under Tom Malone. Um, there is, a, say, an academic network, which they're part of, which met in New York last June, next conference in Zurich next July, if you're interested. Um, and they're saying they, they, they've helped to sort of name the field. I think there's a bit of a missing theory. So part of the reason to write the book was to try and fill out some of the, the missing bits of theory. And I mentioned CoLab, the climate change project you, you describe. And I just think we're, we're in a field which now needs to mature to the next stage in terms of use of other disciplines, in terms of scale of action, and in terms of things like organizing the memory. So most of these projects are very discrete, sort of interesting but almost boutique projects. They're not really strategic or systemic, and that's what I think we need to, to move to. I think there is a great virtue in the sort of things you describe, those sort of games where you learn to play with the system. Now, SimCity has been doing it for 20 or 30 years, so you, uh, and, and children often very good at this, so you learn how to think about different inputs and outcomes, et cetera, and how they relate together. That, to me, is, is you know, one of the, the basic sort of skills of living in a, in a world of collective uh, intelligence. And ideally, uh, you know, if you are a city, we were talking about this earlier, you know, alongside your existing systems, you have a, a digital twin. This is being done in physical infrastructure in many parts of the world, where alongside your, your rail and energy infrastructure, you have a digital model of that, so you can play with it and see what different tweaks, what effect they would have. Ideally, those should be open, so anyone can play with them, so they're part of educating all the citizens in how their systems work. And that's much easier to do now than it was even five years ago. Uh, so what you describe just becomes absolutely mainstream. Uh, yeah, over here. Would you, you agree? Could identify yourself before asking a question. Yeah, my name is Shamil. I'm from Kyrgyzstan, and I'm mid-career student at Kennedy School. Mm -hmm. Would you agree that properly designed social infrastructure, like public spaces, parks, you know, walkable streets, etc., they may enhance uh, development of the collective intelligence? Well, one of the bits of the book which I, I really wanted to write more on. Uh, and it's only a couple of pages, is, is essentially exactly that question. What are um, mind-enhancing environments? Because I think a lot of the, 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 the drive of urban design in recent decades was to make it as easy as possible to get from A to B, to remove any friction, and often to the extent the environment was telling you anything, it was advertising billboards or stuff like that. So if you had to sort of start from scratch creating a new city, what would be one which would actually be stimulating of the brain power of its citizens? It would involve, uh, and this has happened in children's play areas, but there's been a big move away from uh, emphasizing safety over everything else to deliberately building into play spaces some risk and danger and you know, unpredictability because that makes you grow up better as a child. And I think there's an equivalent for cities. How do they stimulate you, challenge you, stretch you, make you think in a, in a, in a different way? And my, my guess is, uh, and there's some people in urban design working on this question, but it's very un, under-theorized uh, at the moment. But it's, it's, if you go to the most advanced smart cities of the world at the moment, as in New Song Do a couple of weeks ago, you know, they are the exact opposite of that. They have almost, although they claim to be smart, their effect on the people within it is exactly the opposite. They make you dumb. 
because they do everything for, for you and don't in any way challenge, stimulate, educate. So, so it's a complete shift of what's aesthetic uh, may be needed, if I'm understanding your question right. Yeah. Jeff, I wonder if um, I could get you to say a little bit more about, uh, to flesh out the distinctions between artificial intelligence and collective intelligence. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think they're obviously different. A bunch of different dimensions could be at stake. And so, let me, so why isn't Amazon, you know, the company, the pro, not the, just the, mm -hmm. the kind of product and sales and mm -hmm. commerce part of it, an amazing collective intelligence system because mm -hmm. it's gathering, you know, 2,500 data points about every mm -hmm. single person, probably knows what color yeah. backpack you want before yeah. you have the thought to get a backpack, can get you that backpack at the cheapest price globally yeah. sourced yeah. in two days now, probably yeah. two hours next year. So why isn't that, what does, well first, does that count as just an amazing you know, home run in collective yeah. intelligence? And a bunch of that is obviously machine learning and AI assisted. And if not, what do you have in mind that's different from that? Well, I, I do actually mention Amazon as a good example of a collective intelligence mm. assembly because they have accumulated multiple elements uh, using data, AI, as you say, predicting what you're going to want before you even knew you want it, uh, and then actually shipping it before you've even ordered it. Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing system of, um, uh, of machine intelligence, but it's probably not one in any way which really gives you agency over the things which matter most in your life. So, um, so that's the key. Uh, and, and of course, for the people who work in Amazon, it's almost the <laughs> precise, so. precise opposite. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I I, I'm actually a believer there's a long way to go with just purely yeah. machine intelligence helping to make all sorts of systems more, uh, uh, more, more smart. But for most of the things that matter, they need to integrate with, with human intelligence at large scale to, to work. So the, the cancer thing I started with, There'd be one future for that cancer system, which, which essentially applied Amazon thought to it. It's kind of an, a more AI in your... Yeah, exactly. It'd be lots more artificial intelligence, gather lots of data, full genome sequencing of everyone. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with that will be when you actually want to change the behavior of doctors or patients. I see. Or indeed, if you want, if they That's want amazing. to generate new knowledge about their own cancers and treatments and so on. I see. Uh, so it, it is an inherently rather undemocratic sort of vision of the world, which is why, to my mind, we need the collective intelligence complement to AI. Otherwise, we end up, like in the smart cities, as essentially passive observers on rather right. smart systems, but which leave many of our desires unrecognized uh, and, uh, and leave us disempowered. I see. Because this is empowerment and then yeah. action changing. I mean, part yeah. of the initial slide you said was... Yeah. A bunch of it is about data and learning, but a yeah. bunch of it is also about action and behavior. And so you're kind of stressing those components yeah. in the yeah. CI. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. All right. Bob. I'll follow up on your AI question, um, and particularly about Amazon, which is, Bezos himself says, it's basically um, <coughs> uh, updating data that they have. They, have, they know. Amazon probably knows more about me than anybody else in the room knows, it's just because of what I search. And, and certainly when they say, uh, people have bought this book, uh, have also bought the following, and I have at least half those uh, already. <laughs> yeah. So um, they're, they're pretty good at my book buying habits. Yeah. Um, but 
notice that most of the artificial intelligence stuff is single purpose. Right. Not okay. Uh, it plays chess, but it can't drive a car. Mm -hmm. It drives a car, but can't 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 play chess. And just this morning, there was um, a report that came around one of the websites I uh, visit that the artificial intelligence system for predicting uh, child welfare problems, that is, uh, whether the kid's going to be assaulted or not by a parent or a relative, um, several states have gotten rid of it. Uh, it was making both type 1 errors and type 2 errors. Um, and that strikes me as um, an important step between cars and chess to collective intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so I. I'd like to go back to the artificial intelligence and how good is that at the moment to do what you would like it to do. Even for the child welfare kinds yeah. of, or, or yeah, yeah, the prediction. Yeah. yeah. Well, th this is a very live um, issue. Um, I mean, in fact, that the chess, you know, the chess program uh, last week of AlphaGo was a gen general artificial intelligence, not a, not traditional classic chess playing AI. So. Um, I think it is, a, it is an important step in AI evolution. But there, there are three or four angles which I think are, are perhaps key on this. One is about human supervision and algorithms. Right. So as you say, we've got lots of examples of algorithms used in you know, criminal justice or child welfare, which, which make biased predictions, have all sorts of problems. So you clearly need humans to supervise and be able to interrogate and challenge the algorithms. Uh, one of my colleagues, Juan Mateus Garcia, has actually developed an economic theory of how you predict human and machine supervision, both human supervision of machines and vice versa. Because you might want your judges to also to be overseen <laughs> yeah. by an AI to make sure they're not biased, because humans are not always you know, uh, immaculate in that sense. Um, there's then a sort of governance design question. Uh, a couple of years ago, we put out a, a blueprint for a, a machine intelligence commission, a regulator of AI, uh, and just two weeks ago, the UK government announced it would create some such entity, though it hasn't worked out what it will consist of yet. And to my mind, the, the model for doing that actually is to apply collective intelligence theory to the supervision regulation of AI, i.e. mobilizing lots of minds, lots of people, from science to ethics to, to citizens, uh, working through different scenarios, thinking about models, exploring the, the difficult cases in real time, rather than just writing a law and then sort of policing it for the next five or ten years. Um, uh, if you're interested, next week uh, I'm publishing a, a sort of a, another version of this of you know, what, what, how should we regulate AI. But it's, an, it's a very, very live question everywhere. And I think it, it just happens to be one which is best answered through CI not just through having a bunch of technocrats or judges or FCC-type regulators to be in charge. But that's a big, you've opened up a big uh, other issue. Yeah. On the AI example for um, children's welfare, it yeah. seems to me that um, the collective intelligence might solve the problem in the sense that if I get told by my algorithm that yeah. I better take the child away, the yeah. last thing I'm going to do as a bureaucrat is not take the child away because um, that's the disaster that gets me in trouble and why we take so many children out of uh, families to start with. But that also suggests that I gotta have some way of getting the collective intelligence relatively quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you know, am I going to call all my buddies together and say, should I take this guy out or not? Yeah. Um, and right. how do I mobilize that? Um, 
it's one thing to think about the future of the city. It's another thing to make um, operational decisions. Yeah. Well, at the moment, at Nesta, we're, we're incubating for the government a new What Works Centre on Children's Social Care, working with literally hundreds of social workers to try and answer your question. I don't have a good answer to your question, but it's, we now have a, a vehicle to create a new institution, government-funded, to help. That's a great thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, did you, uh, go ahead. Let me add some gender balance to this yeah. conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, it seems that always when it comes to AI or collective intelligence, mm. it's all a male-dominating <laughs> conversation. So my question is something yeah. related with, uh, my name is Cecilia, I'm here, a research fellow at the, at the Ash Center. Uh, something related with which uh, Arkin asked at the mm. beginning, mm. it's who gets to participate. Mm. And actually, I, I'm pretty close to the, the City of Madrid mm. project, yeah. and it seems that we are always struggling to uh, bring more people to that conversation, to harness that collective intelligence, mm. and it seems that uh, the, the, the disenfranchised peop people always also are not included in this kind of conversation. How we, can we uh, work more in getting more people uh, in this in these projects, in yeah. this methodology as well? Yeah, no, it's a great question, and I didn't really answer Archon's starting point because he sort of disoriented me by asking <laughs> such a fundamental question so early. So first of all, on, on the democracy tools, so Decide Madrid and Barcelona in Comu, certainly in the Barcelona example, they put a lot of effort into ensuring it wasn't just relatively young, male, highly educated, urban. And in fact, the participation in creating Ada Calau's platform and then the Barcelona program roughly mirrors the demographic uh, patterns of Barcelona. Madrid is a bit less so. But that was partly because they had a lot of face to, uh, offline meetings alongside the online and really worked hard at making the whole thing um, uh, collectively intelligent and representative. I think health is the other really interesting field where some of these sort of things I've described are very much for you know, health professionals, doctors, and so on. But there's actually you know, patient organizations yeah. doing the exact opposite and mobilizing very large numbers of people to generate data, to run experiments, to orchestrate knowledge. Uh, and those, almost by their nature, are, are very different demographics. Uh, and that's another strand of work we're doing at the moment is on yeah, so patient collective intelligence as, a, as an alternative paradigm. But I think you know, your question is just one we have to return to all the time. Otherwise, we end up with um, what appear to be wonderful new tools, but actually just reflect old power structures. Mm -hmm. Did you have a question? Yeah. yeah. Cool. If you could um, identify yourself. Um, I'm Mikhail, a visiting scholar at the Davis Center. Your book says how collective intelligence can change our world. Mm. And it seems like you're discussing how it can make our world better. But I'll just give you a small example. Like I buy ice cream at CVS using my card. Mm -hmm. The more I buy it, the more they give me discount coupons. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so the more, the, so world's been changed. the more right. I eat it, yeah. you know, the more discounts they give me, and the more yeah. I have to eat it. Yeah. And I'm sure, like retailers, can use different, you know, obsessions just yeah. to ruin citizens, you know, fellow Americans. So I'm, I'm curious if you are discussing, actually, in your book, any dangers of this notion, any threats, any problems. Yeah. So th there's a whole chapter on the enemies. <laughs> uh, and uh, the enemies are some very familiar ones about um, disinformation, lies, 
Yeah, there's always an interest. Someone has an interest in undermining anyone else's collective in intelligence. There are very strong enemies built into the business models of social media mm -hmm. and so on, which are incentivized to encourage you to be obsessive, compulsive, addictive in all your behaviors. I'm sure you aren't in practice, but you know that, that's the way <laughs> our social media are, are designed and, and rewarded. And so they are using some algorithms to prey on you know, the worst side of your personality or my personality too. Uh, and I think that's partly an issue of, of regulation, but partly an issue of designing the, the, the contrary uh, forces. Um, this isn't a new problem. Right. And in the book, I look at many of the institutional innovations of the last 200 years as essentially um, uh, uh, counters to the enemies of collective intelligence. They range from auditors you know, in markets uh, to you know, the, the, the best parts of the science system. Things like the What Works Centers I described are attempts to create new contrary forces to the tendencies otherwise of um, collective stupidity or deliberate undermining of the collective's ability to think. And I see it very much as a, as a, as a warfare, actually, a, a, an arms race within every, every field, every sector, every society. And uh, again, this was almost completely missing from the, the previous literature on collective intelligence or the wisdom of crowds, which also saw, as, saw truth as a benign emergent property mm -hmm. of a networked world. I don't see it that way at all. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Mark, did you? Uh, I'm Mark Moore. I'm a professor here at the Perry School. Um, follows pretty much directly on your question, which is um, you kept referring to things that uh, we might want for ourselves. Uh, that we uh, that aren't being attended to by collective intelligence. All right, I myself was thinking, Amazon gives me pretty much what I want, but mm -hmm. that was uh, I was afraid to confess that openly. Uh, but it it does seem to me that the question of um, if you get people together, uh, well, first the question about how I can feel uh, a stronger agency in my own life and in the way I behave. Uh, question is how could collective intelligence uh, help that and then related to that would be um, to the degree that I have to interact with others um, uh, what could I do to strengthen my sense of empathy uh, and understanding such mm. that if I made a choice uh, that affected the other person I'd have a pretty good idea about uh, how they would think about mm. it as well so if you think about these things that might matter to individuals mm. growing up in a com in a consumer world threatened by being manipulated, mm. right? What are the things that could happen that would make me feel like I had uh, more sense of agency and a deeper sense of responsibility for my fellows? Yeah. Well, so, so most of the book is more about the collective interest rather than your individual interest in a better house, you know, new products, uh, etc. I thought I was addressing Okay, okay, maybe. Well, but that, that, I, I say I don't write very much about that. Almost my starting point is more this, this paradox, which you may all have different uh, interpretations of, is why as we are surrounded by ever more smart tools, you know, you're all carrying <laughs> around in your pockets, you've got these amazing AIs, can, you know, drive cars, fly aeroplanes, win at chess. Why do things collectively feel stupider? Why is the, the whole not just less than the sum of its parts, but actually going in the opposite direction? And what analytic tools would help you make sense of that? And the reason for the, the subtitle like, is the hope that better design of 
combinations of collective artificial intelligence can help solve collective problems yeah. more effectively, whether it is uh, cancer, unemployment, inequality, whatever, that that is the territory we should be investing you know, b brain power and the institutional capacities of this sort of place to, to do. Amazon will do fine for your shopping. Uh, I've, I've got nothing to add to that. But I think there's a, <laughs> there's a parallel task which is being under-attended to and tiny amounts of money being invested in, in solving it. Right. That's yeah. great. Uh, okay, yeah, you get the last question. Oh, okay. <laughs> Hi. Um, I'm Ori, I'm a postdoc in the physics department, so I've kind of, uh, between oh, wow. the technical and the human aspect. Mm -hmm. um, speaking about the role of experts, because um, let's take two of your examples. One is the 50-year-old truck driver or manufacturer that mm -hmm. lost his job. The experts can say, uh, okay, first of all, the, the, even if you train him somehow, there is still in a, let's say, geographically in a remote area, so he doesn't have, objectively, that many options. Mm -hmm. And experts can say even now, in the 10, 10 years from now, we'll need much more caretakers for the elderly. Mm -hmm. How do you transform a 50-year-old truck driver manufacturer to, a caretaker to, to the elderly is more of a mm -hmm. psychological, cultural problem. Mm -hmm. Or climate change. Experts can tell you nuclear energy and phasing out the meat industry, best solutions out there. Huge resistance and ignorance by the public about that. So it's not like we don't know what the solutions are and necessarily we need this collective intelligence. Is that the populace is not ready to take these steps. Mm -hmm. So even if you have all these tools, you'll still face big resistance getting to those solutions. Uh, absolutely, and I, I, this is definitely not the answer to everything. <laughs> but as, as I said earlier, I see this as a necessary condition for answering every single one of the problems you described, but not a sufficient one. Mm -hmm. And indeed, climate change through IPCC and the whole you know, machineries around it is actually quite a good live example of the attempt to create a truly global collective intelligence. Yeah, we monitor um, temperature levels, carbon emissions, Thousands of scientists through IPCC combined together to try and analyze it, predict, and so on. Um, the missing bit is how that feeds into action, citizen belief, etc. But it's a, it's a huge step forward. There was nothing like that 20 years ago in any field of human activity. So that's why I say let's, let's learn from those, build on those. You'll still have a challenge getting your 53-year-old truck driver to become a care worker. Though, in fact, um, we... we, we published a few weeks ago, our, our forecast on job needs in the US and the UK, uh, uh, there's a lot of job creation in roles which that person may well be able to get. So it's, it's not quite as bleak as is often portrayed. And if you're interested, yeah, read Future of Skills 2030, which has a very, very detailed uh, analysis of US and UK labor market trends, and is itself, as a piece of research, an interesting combination of machine intelligence, there are predictive algorithms used, and human expert panels, and interacting together to try and predict what will happen to different job categories, which will disappear, <coughs> which will grow, which will mutate. So it's, it's, it's a project both about this, but also the very methods it uses embody this AI plus CI technique, and, and has led, I think, to a much more fine-grained analysis of future jobs and skills needs than the last few uh, waves of stuff which came out. Yeah, that's fantastic. So I, I think I'm going to take yeah. take away four four points from our discussion today. One is 
the importance of moving from AI to CI. There's been a whole lot of attention to AI, uh, much less to collective intelligence. The second is, uh, and this is just who you are, so I don't think you really emphasized this because you felt like you didn't need to, is moving from uh, private AI and CI endeavors to public AI and CI endeavors. I think there's been a lot more progress for a lot of reasons on the data side, on the remuneration side, on the, in the private sector mm. than in the mm. public. Mm. The third is to move from the enthusiastic to still maintaining enthusiasm and optimism, but with some criticism about mm. the enemies of AI and mm. CI, et cetera. I don't know how many people read the, the DeepMind article. I think it was just on Friday that it came out. So, uh, this AI, it was not a supervised training set. It trained itself yeah. to play chess and go. And in six hours, by training itself um, through an iterated method, it became better than the best chess players and best Go players and other AIs yeah. that had played chess and Go yeah. in six hours. That's a long time if yeah. you're a machine. It's not a long time if you're a person. It's remarkable. So yeah. I think for many years we've been thinking, oh, well, there's no downside to this. It's all gravy. Yeah. But I think now with um, a bunch of the economic implications and the fake news, we're beginning to see some downsides. And then I think the fourth uh, and, and final insight, which I don't know if you'll agree with, is really you're talking about two different levels of collective intelligence. And one level is kind of at the enterprise or policy problem level of addressing cancer or parking in a city or uh, selling products on Amazon or whatever. Mm. That's kind of enterprise or problem mm. level. Mm. But then there's also a social regulation level of collective intelligence that I think mm. you're also mm. deeply concerned about mm. that is, I think, you know, has some similarities, but is not the same thing. And so it might be worth teasing those yeah. things out. Yeah. And the, um, I think the role of AI and machine learning in that social regulation collective intelligence process is, I don't know, more ambiguous than in the enterprise. I think yeah. in the enterprise, yeah. it's for sure a given in that second larger yeah. social level. I don't exactly know how it plays. I think we're at the very, as you say, beginning yeah. stages of that. Yeah. Um, but thank you very much for your Because I've made two, two, two final comments. One is um, the deep mind people who did this, uh, unusually in the AI world, are actually very concerned about ethics and downsides and problems. And some of this book has come out of conversations with some of them over the last few years. So they would actually get yeah. the scale of the problem, which isn't perhaps true of all of their peers. Uh, and secondly, I mean, th this book is very much meant to be a, a sort of starting sketch, mainly to encourage people cleverer than me to really fill in the bits <laughs> and make sense of this, because I'm absolutely convinced this is a, a space which needs the best kind of brains to work on it, because um, there's nothing natural about collective intelligence. It is not an emergent property which happens anything. automatically yeah. when everyone's on the internet, as was often talked about 10, 20, 30 years yeah. ago. That turned out to be completely wrong. Wow. This field will only advance if people put effort into it, labor, resources, hard work to solve these knotty problems, and right. you're the kind of people to do it. That's great. Great note to end on. Thank Indeed. you very much, Jeff. Indeed.